pterodactyl thrill and inspiring your trumpet journey, here's your host, James Newcomb. Well, everybody, welcome to the show. I am excited to be back in your earballs after a bit of a hiatus. I've been busy with various things, such as getting the love of my life qualified to enter the United States legally, and that has entailed a lot of travel and just just been busy with things. And it's not that I meant to put a hold on things or just ignore people who tune into the show. It's just that I realized that I don't have enough time to devote the, you know, the necessary time that it takes to do a show the right way. And I just decided to just put it on hold. Let me take care of business. And then now the time is right to just, just dive in, dive in. There's never really a right time to do anything, but sometimes you just have to dive in and and just make time to, to get it done. But now now is a good time. It's as good a time as any, I'll say that, to get back into it. And I'm really excited to uh, kick things off again with the show with none other than, than Steve Baker. If you've been uh, following this show for any length of time, you may recall Steve was featured on the show about a year ago. We're recording this in July of 22, so... Uh, I think it was May, June time frame of 21 that we spoke with Steve and he shared uh, a lot of what was going on with how the COVID lockdowns had affected business as a as a musicpreneur. It, it affected it drastically. It, it basically shut his business down with the Bull City Syndicate and the many things that he's involved with in the uh, Raleigh-Durham area. But now things are, are changing. Things have changed for the better. And so we're going to get a little bit of an update from Steve. And uh, I, f- I thought since we have him on the line, maybe he, he's got extensive history with music and the music business. And he's a wonderful player, a great trumpet player. And uh, I, 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 I'm just going to pick his brain for a little while. I just talk music and just talk business. And hopefully... There will be something that is shared that will be of benefit for you who have pressed play on this episode. Now, something that you may not know about Steve, or maybe you do know about Steve, is that he is uh, he he has done his homework when it comes to the events that happened at the Capitol in, in, on January sixth, twenty 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 one or twenty twenty twenty, wasn't it? Twenty twenty one, right before Trump left. Yeah, and so he he has done his homework and he uh when he's not doing his music business he has a a side i don't know if you'd call it a side business but he does a lot of blogging in the political sphere and steve has insights and viewpoints on january 20 uh, uh, january 6th of 2020 that well you're not going to find on cnn or fox or any of the mainstream news outlets and uh, we're gonna we're gonna wait until the very end of the of the podcast before before we get into that because I, I do want it to focus more on music business. But if you have somebody who knows something and who can speak with authority on on something that quite frankly we're all we're all interested in as Americans, why not talk about it? So 
We are going to save it for the very end. It's not that's I, I, that's not why I brought Steve on to to talk about that. But I I thought why not if he if he's got something to say about it, we should pick his brain. So with all that said, Steve, welcome to the show. Hey James, it's so good to see you again or hear from you again. <laughs> it's good to hear from you and see your face. He has the uh, the planet Earth is his backdrop on Zoom. Yeah. Is there any significance behind that, or is it just? Well, no. I, I'm just uh, as you can see, we've got Florida right here, and I've got. Oh yeah. Where, this is where I live, and you're just a little yeah. north of me, right? Just now. Just a little north, a little yeah. northeast, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm in Virginia Beach currently. You're you're in Raleigh, right now. Yeah, Raleigh Durham area. All right. All right. Secret location, underground bunker. Underground bunker. Yeah. Well, you need that if you have a <laughs> an unapproved view of January sixth, don't you? <laughs> well, my my views are unapproved by most sides, so right. I'm unique in that regard. All right. Well, we will save that for the for the end of the podcast. But uh, last time we spoke, you were uh, I, I think you were just getting back on your feet with uh, uh, your various musical activities. But now it's been a year, so can you just give us an update of what life looks like for a professional uh, entrepreneurial musician? in the post-COVID world? First of all, we hope that it's post-COVID because now they are, of course, talking about additional uh, ramping up of measures and restrictions and masking and that sort of thing uh, as we enter the quote-unquote flu season Mm. uh, after the summer. Uh, Already some uh, schools around the country and not just uh, the liberal or what we call the the blue states, not just New York and California, but um, school districts all over the country are now implying, if not directly stating, that they are going to have mask requirements for their children uh, to go to school again this year. Mm. And then, of course, um, in the music business itself, it's still it's still a, uh, a wide-ranging uh, uh, potpourri of attitudes that are out there, particularly with the touring artists. There's, there's really, you know, there's several different divisions when we're talking about the music business. I myself am in what we call the private event industry. So okay. I, my bands, we do mostly private events. And that is, of course, you know, uh, corporate events and festivals and then and weddings, that sort of thing. And then when you're talking about the big touring acts, the two the two industries are are very, very different right now in how they're they're responding to the post-COVID world. Just as, as a, for instance, just this past weekend here in Raleigh, uh, two of our major venues had big artists. Uh, Dave Matthews was playing at the outdoor Walnut Creek, you know, amphitheater, which holds 20,000 people. And then I think it was uh, New Kids on the Block and um, Salt and Pepper were doing um, a show at the arena, which is, you know, an 18,000 seat uh, arena, uh, indoor event. And Dave Matthews in a hundred degree heat, not only did he require all the local crew members and local staff members to be tested as they arrived at the gate, but then in that hundred degree heat, all day long, they had to wear masks uh, at an outside venue. By contrast, over at the arena, indoor venue where the new kid, new kids on the block were playing, um, no testing requirements, no masks whatsoever. It was like, you know, COVID had never come to town. And so what's happening at that level is most of the artists themselves are being allowed to dictate the terms of the day in terms of um, COVID protocols, so to speak. Uh, Matthews even, and this is really absurd. So what, what happens with the local crew 
as a as a general rule, and, that, and we're we're talking about anywhere from fifty to a hundred local crew members are, are engaged in, in helping set up these uh, these events and unload the trucks and uh, yeah, yeah. erect the stages, that sort of thing. And what what happened at that particular event? Not only were they required to test before they were allowed to enter that morning for setup, but the local crew will generally go home after they're done. They'll go home and then come back for the the loadout time. And uh, he actually required them to retest again when they got back. And, and so that's one of the more severe restrictions. And then we've seen artists, uh, particularly country artists, they actually don't even allow. So if you even wanted to wear a mask backstage, they make you take it off. So everybody's different. Yeah. Live Nation itself is the biggest you know, promoter in the world is not dictating and doesn't have a singular policy for all their shows. They're leaving that up to the individual artists to set those terms. Uh, that's, it's so interesting. Uh, I, uh, and I'll, I'll share some personal anecdotes here on this is, uh, I've been traveling to and fro to and from Vietnam and Vietnam has gone through severe lockdowns. And then just a few months later, they're literally saying you're not allowed to wear masks. <laughs> you know, Are they you, really saying that? Yes. It's interesting. My <laughs> my attorney is actually um, he's he's a former uh, federal prosecutor and had done a lot of work for the State Department working in Vietnam for years, and so he mm -hmm. became very um, uh, just attracted to the culture and the, and all that goes on over there. So, and then he started in his private practice, started doing a lot of uh, private work as well, particularly, you know, contract negotiations, stuff like that for multinational com uh, companies. Mm -hmm. And he was actually in Vietnam in December before COVID arrived. So mm -hmm. it was already breaking out in China, you know, yeah. and then right, right there across the border. And he was in, he was actually in Vietnam from December of 2019 through i think it was march when it really kind of busted loose yes. here yes. and the lockdown started happening here in the united states so during that four-month period he got to see all of the development of what was taking place in vietnam and so I've, I've gotten tons of stories about that and we won't bore the listeners or audience with, no. with those but I'm, i i don't mind telling you i'm absolutely surprised that what is still ostensibly a um, totalitarian regime is now saying you can't wear masks. It's good in that the science and the data has actually now shown that masking the nations. This is true. This is these are multinational studies that are that are coming forth now post COVID on the results of the lockdowns, the results of the um, the protocols and that sort of thing. But as we're now learning, is that the countries with the highest level of mask compliance had higher death rates than the countries with the lowest level of mask mm -hmm. compliance. And that's just the data that's coming out. Right. So you, you can, you can fill in the blanks and try to determine why that is, but it's um, basically irrefutable that high mask compliance is equaling a higher death rate um, as a result of uh, this particular virus. I, I realized, and, and we're not going to spend forever talking about COVID, I promise, <laughs> but yeah. But uh, it, it, Vietnam, um, I was there the same time as your friend. I got there in January of 2020, I think January 1st mm. or 2nd. So I was there right at the same time, and I was there until uh, the, the end of July of 2020. And there it was business as usual until I left in, Ju in, in uh, July. 
when I went back in January of 21, total lockdown, lockdown wow. city. And I could tell you some stories about how serious they took the lockdowns. Mm. And it was all the way through um, uh, August of 21 when I left again, came back uh, in May of this year, 22. And it was, it was basically business, you know, pre-COVID type of things. But there was still so many people that just, they, they want to wear masks. They, they just choose to wear masks, even though the, the, the culture by and large is going away from masks. And I realized there's, there's some tribal identity when it comes to wearing masks. And it, 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 it's not as much about being safe or thinking that you're being healthy or preventing the spread of anything as much as we're Vietnamese and this is what we do. Well, it, it seems to be much more prevalent among the Asian cultures. And in fact, even here in the U.S., if you're out in a public event, a larger public event even today, you're going to see Asians more likely masked than you right. are, you know, other races. Right. And and that's their culture. They they do as they, 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 they are more, I don't know how you say it, compliant, or they just, they just want to, uh, blend in or they do they, 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 they do what the other Vietnamese are doing. Whatever <laughs> your buddy is doing down the road, that's what you want to do because yeah. you don't want to stick out. That's just their culture. And I'm the exact opposite. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's why communism was successful over there because yeah. of that type of mentality that they have. Yeah. And it's it's why it didn't uh, take off here in America. Yeah, but we're back we're back to um some semblance of uh, pretty close to normal here in, in terms of the business itself. As I mentioned before, the 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 um, the touring acts, the big acts, uh, the arena, you know, um, uh, stadium touring acts, they're doing unbelievable numbers. In fact, there's probably more shows going on right now on a you know weekly basis than there was even before COVID because the the, the pent up the demand is yes. out. Yes, yes. And so those shows are doing. You know, tremendous right now. And then, of course, we experienced a, a, a real uptick in uh, requests and uh, inquiries about, you know, what my level of the business and what we do. And that happened. But we're now seeing another downturn in the number of inquiries that are coming in, number of phone calls I'm getting. It's because of the economic situation right now. The people that are going to spend money for, you know, really expensive wedding band, for instance, mm -hmm. are more likely at this time, or the or the, the bride's dad is more likely to say, honey, uh, you're not going to get a 10-piece horn band. You can get a five-piece band or a DJ. Got it. And so we're experiencing that again, which is okay. very similar to what we went through back in 2008 when gas prices went up to $4 back then. And of course we had the mortgage, uh, yeah. uh, bubble burst and all of that took place. And we, we had, we had a 70% drop in our industry segment at that time. I'm mean, literally overnight. We lost 70% wow. of our business in uh, 2000, late 2008, early 2009. And it took a long time for that to recover. Mm. I, I haven't seen it that severe yet here this time. Hmm. But uh, I am seeing the leading uh, edge of that. And, and of course, I always like to joke and say is that the private event industry is, in fact, the leading economic indicator because we are money that nobody has to spend. 
Yes. We are discretionary funds. And that doesn't yes. matter if it's uh, an upper middle class family and, you know, little Susie is getting married or if it's a wealthy mm -hmm. family, they're still making decisions based right. on what they see is coming. I'm, I'm in the same boat with um, my business is podcasting and podcasting like, uh, like a podcast is a luxury. Like it's, yeah. it's not something that you have to have for your business. It's nice to have. But you don't have to have it, right? And um, I, I, I don't know if I'm feeling it uh, the way that you might be feeling it, but I can relate. Well, the the other thing, James, that happened is during the lockdowns, people were buying their own podcasting gear by the millions of units. The, yes. That was that was an incredible phenomenon. People, because like myself, you, you, you mentioned earlier at the beginning here that I have a sideline business. And in fact, it is a business, but it became a business at the earliest um, part of the COVID lockdowns because I wasn't allowed to work. And yes. once I realized that uh, two weeks to flatten the curve was going to be two months and then it may very well indeed be two years, mm -hmm. I immediately then monetized what I had been doing as a hobby for almost two decades, which right. was doing right. political commentary, blogging, writing, that sort of thing. And so the one thing that I was not doing was I was not doing podcasting. So I did what everybody else was doing at that time, and I bought my own gear and threw myself into it. I think I was thinking the other day, how many people got into podcasting? They thought, I've got all this time on my hands. I'm going to do a podcast. And I, I, I thought to myself, how many of those that got started during 2020 or tw early 2021, how many of those are still going? <laughs> it's probably like anything else that becomes yeah. a bad is that there's probably a lot of really good gear out there for sale cheap right now. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. But yeah, I, I, eBay I think, or yeah. or I, I would say that if there's just a, a handful of really high quality shows that, that started and are still going as a result mm -hmm. of the lockdown, you know, then, yeah. then, then I'm all for it. Well, COVID is, it's easily my favorite topic. No, I'm just kidding. It's not, but it is something. It's, well, it is definitely a topic of mine, but it is not a favorite topic. It is mine. a topic of interest. Yes. But it is not a, 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 a favorite topic. But I want to talk about you because we talked about your, you know, struggles with the COVID and that's, I think that's all we talked about, but I didn't, I don't think they were really got to talk about you as a musician. I know you're a trumpet player. You're a wonderful mm -hmm. player. Grew up in Louisiana, I think. Yeah. A star player in high school. And I, I can you just tell us a little bit about you as a trumpet player and how you got into, how do you, how do you got your entrepreneurial bug? Uh, like, tell us that story. <laughs> well, yeah. The, the try and give the, uh, the Reader's Digest condensed version. I, I was, you know, I, I grew up in a home with a father who was a wannabe trumpet player. He didn't even start playing till he's about 23 and he taught himself. But, but so as a, as a small child, I had a dad who was doing that and, and all he was trying to do was just learn enough proficiency to play at church. And that was, that was, that was the, the height of his ambitions, but it was in my home. And then of course, more, more importantly in my home were the records of all the great players, everyone from, you know, Doc Severinsen to Louis Armstrong and everybody in between. And so, I was exposed to that, but the truth of the matter is, is I was actually uh, 
most infatuated with the trombone. I loved watching the trombone players on uh, Lawrence Welk show every Saturday. And so that's what I wanted to do. So my dad bought me a trombone when I was a small child and, and I um, was too young to even start playing in school. And the whole idea of private lessons, I didn't, we, we probably didn't even know that there was such a, a thing. And certainly at that point in, in my, uh, my family's life, uh, they, they couldn't have afforded that anyway. But the point being is, is that I started teaching myself to play trombone and I was playing trombone along with all these trumpet, uh, trumpet records, everything from, you know, uh, Herb Albert and the Tijuana brass to this. And so I'm teaching myself how to play that. And the summer before I began, uh, or before I was to begin uh, playing in school band, um, my trombone got stolen. We were moving and all my stuff in my bedroom, my, my GI Joe's and my NFL collectibles and, you know, my, my player cards and everything else like that, including my trombone was the last load to go. And while we were over at the new house and before we could get back, somebody had went into the garage and took everything. So the trombone was gone. So the only thing that we could uh, do at the time, because he couldn't afford to replace the instrument was for me to start band on his old cornet. And so that's what I did. So I started uh, playing cornet instead of trombone, and I've never regretted that since. How, and, how, old, uh, how old were you when this uh, eleven took place? Okay. Like that. Yeah. Oh, okay. And then, and then I, I, uh, uh, I, I progressed very, very quickly. I had, you know, I had an aptitude for for the instrument, and I, you know, immediately became the, you know, the the, the first chair guy almost in every circumstance and everywhere that we, we were. And then eventually um, in high school, the scholarship opportunities started coming and being offered. And, and I, I never did the uh, drum and bugle corps thing. That was just never attractive to me. I, I really, the only thing I ever wanted to do was be a studio player. That's, that's real. I did. I, you know, even touring was not uh, something that I, I fantasized about. Uh, I just wanted to play studio guy, you know, kind of stuff. And then, and then, um, I was, uh, in college a year and a half in, and I got a call from a band that was a international touring uh, act. And I talked to my parents about it. They said they were supportive if I left school and did that. And that's exactly what I did. I jumped on a tour bus and then spent the next few years traveling all over the world playing trumpet. Which band? It was a, uh, it was a band called living sound and, uh, yeah, and the the <laughs> and the the elevator pitch on the story on that band is is that we were the band that actually recorded the theme song to the 1980 Summer Moscow Olympics, and um, so uh, in January of 1980, I had been in the band for two weeks, and I found myself in a recording studio in San Francisco doing what I always wanted to do. And recording the theme song to the 1980 Summer Olympics, it was actually the demo tape that we submitted to them. And um, the band that I was with had already had just gotten back from playing in the Soviet Union and playing in, in Eastern Europe and as well as Western Europe. But they had met the producer of uh, the all of the music. In fact, uh, her name is Alexandra Pakmatova. She's 90. Gosh, she's like 93 years old now. She's still alive. She was Leonid Brezhnev's favorite composer and she actually has uh, look it up sometimes the Pakmatova trumpet concerto it's actually a very famous really? trumpet concerto. yeah yeah look it up well how do you spell it how do you spell it oh how do you spell Pakmatova okay I'll just google it <laughs> P-H-K P-A-H-K something Pachmatova. I'll look it up 
M I'll, yeah, Pakmatuba. Do the do it. Matama. Yeah. And yeah. you can find you can find guys playing it on uh, on YouTube, the, the concerto. But she uh, she also wrote um uh, pop music and she had a particular song that she handed to the band. And this was just only a few weeks before I joined the band when they were over there in Moscow. And so she handed this music to the band and said, um, I'm producing all the music for the 1980 Summer Olympics, and I would very much like to see if you guys uh, can come up with a version that we, we could use. So we did the demo tape in January. Uh, the full version was then later recorded. I think we finished that in April or maybe May of that year and just before the games. And it ended up on the Soviet Olympic album, ended up selling over a million units behind the Iron Curtain. Um, really? Melodia, Melodia Records, the one and only um, record company in the Soviet Union, paid us a flat fee of $5,000 for the master. That was it. We never got any royalties from that. And uh, a flat fee of $5,000 was paid. And then we, because of the the boycott, if you remember, Jimmy Carter um, rallied all of the Western nations together to boycott the Moscow Olympics because of their 1979 invasion of Afghanistan, uh, irony of ironies. And then as a result of that, we weren't able to go over and perform at the Olympics. But we did one year later, exactly a year later, in July of uh, 81, we did, in fact, do, uh, do an official tour in the Soviet Union. Played on Soviet Central Television, played the hit single and all of that. Okay, so uh, Living Sound is the name of the band. Yeah. And the music that you recorded... It wouldn't have been the music for like the NBC telecast. It would have been for the for the Soviet Union television. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, no, it was for because it was. Uh, I don't even think it was covered here. I don't think I don't think the local television uh, in the United States covered that because of the boycott. I was I was four years old at the time, so I don't remember. <laughs> I'm a, I'm an old guy. <laughs> okay, <laughs> giving away living sound. Uh, I mean, I haven't heard of it. But is this yeah. a, a well, band that uh, people older it, than myself would be familiar with? It's no, it's one of those. It's one of those things where you know it's uh, it's uh, an almost famous story. You know what I mean? Like the movie. It it we we had it. We had a hit, but nobody in the West knew about it. And it was actually it was actually two years after we toured over there. It was in 1983. I went over by myself and spent three weeks in the Soviet Union by myself. I was actually carrying a trumpet and a gig bag over my shoulder and sitting in and playing with local bands in the hotel, nightclubs and that sort of thing. And I was in Riga, Latvia, and I walked into a bookstore, just looked desperate for something in English to read. Other than, you know, the because the, the Soviet Union actually had in the, in the um, official in-tourist hotels, they had magazines in English, French, German, so, such as that, and some of the newspapers like Pravda. And, and so it was all, you know, it was all propaganda. And I was looking just for anything substantive to read. And I was, so I went into a bookstore and in this bookstore, I look up on the shelf and I literally see my photo and they had eight of the 45s because we actually did three songs total and they had um a four, there were 40 the 45s were up on the shelf this is not even a music store but this was the only album or record in the store and um they had eight copies of it i bought all eight walked up to the um the counter and set the 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 the, the, the eight records there on the counter and the guy you know he didn't speak english and i didn't speak Latvian and and he looked at the records and then looked back up at me and and he just pointed at me like <laughs> and I went yeah <laughs> and we had a moment right there 
Oh man, what a great story! Yeah. How long were you with Living Sound? I uh, just I, I just did two years on the road with them, but then I did some uh, other work with them because they were a um, well, let's just say that they were a very unique organization at that. They did uh, a lot of subversive work with uh, the um, underground over there, musicians in the, working in the underground uh, in terms of the dissonant uh, movements that were taking place at the time in the Soviet Union. And one of the things that we did, even on our tours, we smuggled in tape duplicating machines, uh, printing press plates and parts. Uh, and then also we left basically all of our gear in there with them. So all the gear that we took in was to be left uh, in, to supply those dissident uh, music groups. I feel like we're writing the script for some sort of Netflix special or something. Well, I, I've 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 got the draft already written of the screenplay, but the uh, it, but yeah, but it's it's a it's a uh, uh, to be honest with you, it's it is an almost famous meets Argo is is basically the way. It, and and I'm I'm not exaggerating when I say that we had we had people that worked with us in helping set this tour up and helping us in our contacts over there that actually spent prison time as a result of, of working directly with us. And then when I went back over in 83, I was actually over there specifically, uh, I wasn't a spy, but what I, what my job was is I was the front man for the organization's leader who was coming in after me three weeks later. So I went in three weeks in advance with no, I had, I had to memorize all the contacts, all the people in the different cities where I was going to meet. I had to make those contacts happen, you know, by hook or by crook. And then I was to set up and organize the time, the places where then those who would come into the country after me would then meet with those dissident, dissident leaders at the time. That was my job in 83. That's why I was there for three weeks. That is fascinating. Wow. I, I, I never would have, I, I never would have known this about you unless you were to, because you, you're such an unassuming personality, <laughs> but now that you are telling these stories, your your side hustle, for lack of a better term, <laughs> makes every, sense. Everything makes sense <laughs> because you are are you you've from a very young age you have taken a contrarian view to yeah. you know what is uh, socially acceptable in American culture. Yeah, and then uh, I I came back home and I got uh, involved in the business of music. I started doing concert promotions. I started managing artists. I've managed to some um, uh, Grammy nominated and uh, 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 you know uh, gold record selling and those types of artists uh, over the years. And and then about twenty, a little over twenty years, twenty two years ago now. Uh, 23 years ago, I started getting the desire to play trumpet again. I actually set the horn down for 10 full years, didn't touch it at all. From basically from roughly 99 to, um, I'm sorry, 89 to 99, I didn't touch, I, my, my horns were literally sitting in a closet and uh, uh, the case is gathering dust and not touched. And then I started dreaming about it. I started, I was 39 years old and I started having dreams about playing trumpet again. And they weren't, they weren't nightmares, but they were guilt dreams almost. I would wake up and I would just be like, you know, you spent so much time, so much effort learning how to do that. And then you walked away from it. I didn't walk away from music, but I walked away from that. And, and I, I had, uh, so I, there was a rekindled passion at that time. So I started taking lessons again at 39 years old. I was flying from Raleigh to Dallas, Texas and taking lessons from Clint McLaughlin. I don't know if you know him down there. 
Yeah. And I started taking lessons from him because he specializes in comeback players, uh, particularly players that come back from disease and injury. And there was a, there was a little bit of a problem that I had. Won't get into that, but the um, point being is that he's special. That was his specialty. I sat down with him and in the very first lesson, I'll never forget it. Uh, he asked me what my goals were. And I said, man, I, I, I don't really have a particular goal in mind with trumpet. I said, but if I ever, you know, if I get good enough to play in church on Sunday morning again, that's, that's fine with me. And, um, and he said uh, something to the effect of, well, why, why are you limiting yourself in that regard? And I said, well, I said, I don't have the time now. I mean, you know, I'm on the treadmill of life. I've got two kids. I've got, you know, a family, I've got the mortgage. I've got a, all the things you have to do. And I don't have, you know, five to eight hours a day to put into trumpet playing like I did when I was a teenager. And when I was in college and he said, well, you don't need that. And I went I'm like, what? And he said, well, he said, the reason why it took you so long to develop what you had back then was because you didn't know what you were doing. And, and, and I, and I, and I just backed off and I go, okay. All right. He's, and he said these words, he said, I'll have you back in six months. I'll have you back to where you were in six months. And I just didn't believe that that was possible, but God is my witness. Six months later. From that lesson, I had my first call with a touring act and went on the road with them. Okay, so this is uh, ninety nine. You have your yeah the, 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 that those lessons. I had those lessons in late ninety nine. I think okay. no, work. My first one was in like November of ninety nine, and then um, in June or July of two thousand, I got the uh, I got the call uh, from a artist friend of mine who was looking for a trumpet player and, and I, and he said, can you do it? And I went, yeah, I think I can. And I did. And so I went out on a road trip with them and then I did another road trip with them a little bit later in the year. And then it was in the fall of 2000, I answered an ad for the band that is now bull city syndicate at the time they were called soul kitchen and the bull city horns. And they were looking for a trumpet player. And that's all I was looking to do. I wasn't looking to be in the business. I wasn't looking to manage a band. I wasn't looking to do anything business related. I just wanted to play trumpet. And I answered an ad, auditioned for him, got the gig. And uh, a year later, I was managing that band. And then about uh, six years after that, I owned the band. How do you come to own a band? Uh, well, I mean, when, when, when they were just not much more than just a really decent club band. And they were, they were a really good club band at the time and had a really strong following here in the, you know, the, the Carolina area. And, um, but they, but there was, they were all, they were all part-time musicians. Uh, they, this was their, their side hustle. Uh, they did it for fun. Money was not, uh, a, a goal of theirs. At, so they took, you know, they took, so many of those, you know, gigs for barbecue and beer. And then of course the bad paying club gigs and that sort of thing. And when I took over the management of the band, we stepped up the game. We started getting better shows, better gigs. Uh, we started doing a lot more private events. We started making real money. And then over the course of time, it became a business instead of just a, you know, a, a hobby for all the, the guys that got together on, you know, Sunday for rehearsals and drank beer on our drummer's back deck and then went out and did a, you know, a, a couple of, uh, you know, bar gigs a week that sort of thing. And so then, then it became a business. And then once it became a business, it became too unwell, unwieldy for some of those guys. And so we had some replacement and turnover musicians. And as a result of that, we were able to step up the game and get better players and uh, guys that were, you know, either in the music business full time or that was really, you know, your focus in life was music. 
And so um, the uh, the business grew, and then you you have to start doing what you have to do with a real business when you have that much money, you know, coming in. You got to start doing all the tax stuff and the registration stuff and the business licensing stuff and the insurance stuff. And you got to, and we changed the name of the band and then we had to go through the trademarking and the, you know, we had the, the branding and all of those things and, buy, and then the internet, you know, with the internet, the buying of the domain names and all that stuff. So somebody had to do it. So ended up in my lap and I ended up therefore owning the band. Okay. So it's not like you like just paid someone X amount of dollars for organically grew into the so-called owner of the band. Yeah. And that was, you know, that, that, that's a, uh, my description there was much more <laughs> abbreviated than the full story. Mm. Oh, but, sure. I'm but, sure. But, yeah. but, but in, in yeah. reality, it's, it's exactly what you okay. just said. So sweat, e- just sweat equity. Yeah sweat, yeah. sweat equity is yeah. which made you mm. the owner of the band. It sounds like you just had took more interest in it than others. Well, it was interest and it was qualifications to do that side of the business, you know, to put the business together and make it work. Because uh, you've had, you'd had that experience in the eighties. Okay. Well, how'd you get into the, uh, the business side of things in the eighties? Uh, the business side of things was actually through, uh, church work. I was, um, I started doing, uh, concert promotions for, um, my church, which had a very large and very vibrant, you know, youth group. And we started bringing in acts, you know, to musical acts to play for the, or play for the kids. And then that grew into not just only playing in our, our church gymnasium, but we were bringing in national touring acts that were playing, you know, the whole, you know, the contemporary Christian music, the Christian rock stuff, that sort of thing. And we, we then started doing theaters. We got bigger acts. We couldn't fit in our, our, church gym and we started doing theaters and even did a couple of arena shows um, with some of the larger ones that, that toured at that level. And so I, I cut my teeth in that regard. And then eventually I got uh, hired by another church up in Minneapolis because they purchased the old, uh, what was called the Union Bar Nightclub in downtown Minneapolis, which was one of the clubs featured in Prince's Purple Rain. And they they had purchased this and they wanted to turn it into a uh, for lack of a better description, a Christian music club. And so um, my, I had a friend up there that said, well, I know somebody <laughs> that could make this work. And so they brought me up there and I spent five years up there putting that, that business in place for them. And um, during that time, I got into the management game and started managing artists and ended up uh, landing an artist that got a deal with EMI records and became an international touring act and um, got a Grammy nomination on their first album. And then, things went from there. Is this someone that we might've heard of? Well, maybe if you were in that world, you know, the contemporary Christian music world, they were called PFR or pray, which stands for pray for rain. And they were, um, they were quite successful in the nineties. So you've got some business chops and you've got trumpet chops and it, that has, <laughs> uh, and you also, uh, do political commentary on the side just to keep things interesting. Yeah. Well, that's always been a passion of mine. I, I, I even, when I actually got home from the road with Living Sound back when I was 23 years old or whatever it was, I, I, I remember sitting down with the political editor at the Shreveport Times, the big, you know, the big newspaper there. We had, at that time, you know, there was a lot of newspapers and we had two, two dailies there at the time, the Shreveport Journal and the Shreveport Times. I sat down with the Times political editor and, and uh, told him I wanted to be the mayor of Shreveport, Louisiana. And he told me I was an absolute nutcase. <laughs> and I was like, why is that? He said, do you have any idea? He said, 
he's like, son, he said, this town is owned by the mafia. This is not something you want to uh, dip your toes into. Okay. Well, that sounds like sound advice. So I, I dropped all aspirations for getting into politics and started writing about it. Just writing about it. So yeah, it's safer. <laughs> Most of the Maybe. time it's safer Maybe. until a certain event in, uh, uh, Last year, January sixth, a couple of a couple of years ago. Well, I I, I want to pick your brain a little bit about the music business because this is always uh, on people's minds uh, listening to this podcast or others. Uh, I, and I'm just going to ask some general questions. So, yeah. if, if it seems too vague, don't just 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 play with me here. So, <laughs> right. what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see musicians make when they decide to? take up an entrepreneurial type of venture? That, that That's actually a great question. And it's one I've dealt with a lot because there's a lot of musicians who become particularly frustrated as sidemen because they know that the band leader is making more money. And, and sometimes the band leader is making exponentially more money. And that's just the, that's part of the process of quote unquote, owning a band. And so they want to tap into that as well, but they don't have the experience. They don't have the background. They don't have the, the, the necessarily the tools. They may be the greatest player at their instrument in the world, but they don't have that other side of their brain working for them. I'm one of those guys that would have, you know, younger, I would have traded my rights, my left side rather that, that helps me on the business side for more of the right side uh, and the creative side of the music. Cause like, like, for instance, having been a musician my entire life, I can't write a song to save my life. I just don't have that thing. And, and, and so I've, I've worked it with over the years, guys that wanted to step out and become the band leader. And they just don't, as you said, they don't have the chops for that side. And really it's that, it's that left, right brain kind of thing. They've got the creative, um, aside down they've got the they've got the playing chops but then it's a lot more than just dealing with the money and balancing a checkbook and or setting up the business properly it's the interpersonal relationships of dealing with the band members and the scheduling and all of that and making sure that every show that you have on the calendar is you know you've got somebody at every position in the band and and that's not easy you know when you're you're when you're hurting musicians, uh, that's that's you know that's one of the toughest groups of people to get all on the same page of anybody on the planet. Recently, I read I think it was maybe an email that I subscribed to. There's a James Brown wrote a song. I paid the cost to be the boss. Have you ever heard that? <laughs> I, I don't recall it, but uh, I, I think I like think the gist of <laughs> I think the gist of the song was he was basically telling he's basically telling his band i'm the boss and and you have to do what i say yeah i well, mean i mean and, uh, and he uh, was uh, he was known borderline tyrannical in that regard too yeah i've heard some stories too but 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 you were talking a little bit you, you just t- mentioned briefly a couple of things about the bull city syndicate some of your responsibilities that are not associated with putting a mouthpiece on your face and blowing yeah but what are some of the things that people need to know? Like, it seems to me like you can develop business chops while you're developing your trumpet chops. You know what I mean? Yeah, you, you can. You can if you're so inclined. If, 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 if your brain works that way uh, and you have the ability to do that, and some people do both phenomenally. They do, they do a great job at managing their music business and playing music. And even on the creative side, I don't have... I, you know, I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not one of those guys that is, you know, 
highly gifted on either side, but I've got a pretty good balance. And, and, uh, the, the thing that, as I mentioned before, that most of these guys that want to do that, they want to step into the business side of things. They, 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 they find out pretty quickly that it's a lot tougher than they had imagined to begin with. I mean, because it's more than just booking a show. There, there are one, one thing that a, a creative guy can do if he's really, really passionate about his craft, about his art, about his songs, about his music, is he can be passionate enough to bang on everybody's door and get a job. And so he can be booked up for sure. And then for whatever reason, at the end of the week or at the end of the month, he doesn't have any money left to pay his band members. And then it's like, well, they're gone. So like, well, where, where, where'd you go? Well, you told me I was going to make so much a gig and I didn't get it. It's because he didn't know how to manage the money up to that point. And so there's that too. So it's more than just booking the gig. And then, as I mentioned earlier, as the, as the thing grows and you're no longer making, you know, beer and barbecue or, you know, 50 bucks a man at, in cash at the end of the night, there comes a point where you have to incorporate and then you have a paper trail. And then of course you have, you're responsible to government entities for, for accounting for that income and, and the outgo and all of those things. And those are called tax forms and so those are, those are the, the, the obstacles that some of these guys ultimately hit and they're just not able to, um, uh, stay with it at that point. So they go back to being a, being a player again, get out, get out of the business side of it. Huh. And, and, and it seems to me like some of these people that you're talking about, if they were to just stick with it, maybe if they were to just suffer their lumps. So sometimes you just have to go through hardship and, and um, fall on your face. Yeah. But it, it, you have to have the passion to want to do that too. Right. And, and okay. Because, because let's be honest, as I said before, 90% of the time that a guy wants to step out from behind the microphone and be, you know, the, the business guy as well, <clears throat> it's just purely a money motivational thing to, and yes. not because he's passionate about that side of the business. All right. So what's the right motivation if it's not money? Uh, well, money's a great motivator. I, I don't, I don't, um, uh, I don't have aught for anybody who's motivated by money. I'm a capitalist myself, and it, it, it's a, it's a great motivator. But you've got to have then the, um, <laughs> you, you've got to, as you said, you've got to have what it takes to to suffer the lumps as well. You know, when going through that process in order to get that business to where you want it to be or where you dreamed it should be or that sort of thing. And, and then of course, if, if you're an original music artist, the best thing to do is to find a good agent, a good manager and, and work it through that, that route, uh, assuming that you can find a manager who also believes in what you're doing, believes in your music. And, and then they, they handle that for you. And then you don't have to worry about it except to make sure that they're, you know, they're handling the books correctly and, yeah, they're, not, and they're not skimming off the top. They're not cheating you. Yeah. They're being honest. Well, I think what I what I what, what I'm asking is somebody will 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 look at just just someone in your, in your position and then say, "Man, Steve is making a thousand dollars per gig, and I'm making three hundred. Three hundred isn't isn't anything to sneeze at for a gig. That's that's no, that's it's pretty, it, that's pretty and, good. You know, it, it's it's um, above average. Uh, to be honest with you, it's above average on a per gig basis for the average local musician. The average local musician is making a hundred dollars per gig playing in nightclubs, that sort of thing. And unfortunately that's exactly what they were making 30 years ago. But I played with the Bill, Bill city syndicate for a few months. I think yeah. about six months you paid pretty handsomely for just showing up for a gig. Right. And then, but, but here's, but here's the reality of this. And, you know, and assuming that some of my, my 
band members are listening to it today. If I'm only making a thousand dollars for those gigs, then, then Bull City Syndicate doesn't exist because right. it costs more than that yes. uh, for the business to function. Right. But, but you're not making it like the business might be making, the business is making That's a thousand. Correct. And of course there, once again, it's because of the dysfunctionality sometimes of the per, purely right, right-brained artist type that they can't see past that. I, I have a great story along that lines. I, when I was managing artists, I got, and I was managing a full-time touring, touring act and, um, they, they had their business set up. Uh, it was a, you know, it was an LLC. They had the, uh, um, uh, they had their own credit cards on their own business. So when they were out on the road, they could do that. And then of course, any other types of expenses they had to make outside of their daily per diems and that sort of thing, they could then send back to me in my office in an envelope, all of their receipts for their their expenses that weren't recoverable while they were out on the road. Like for instance, the, the, the band always took care of the drummer's sticks and his, and his drum heads. We didn't buy his drums, but we, you know, we paid for all the expendable stuff like that. The guitarists, their guitar strings, those kinds of things. And so I would get every month, I would get a package in the mail from each of the individual band members with their, their receipts, and we would do a reimbursement to them. So I, uh, one particular month went by and one of the guys did not send me his, you know, receipt package. And then two months went by, three months went by. And so I finally called him up one day and said, Hey, Joel, got a question for you. I said, um, I haven't gotten a, a expense reimbursement, you know, package from you in, you know, like three months now. And he goes, yeah, um, about that. And so now my antenna's way up because I, I knew at this point, this was going to be good. Uh, and he said, um, yeah, I, I was talking to my wife about it and we decided that we were tired of the corporation getting the tax write-off for that and that we wanted to get the tax write-off for that. And I said, okay. I said, so you realize that at your tax rate, let's say it's 30% or 25, whatever, whatever it is. I said, you're getting from the government, you're only getting 25 cents on the dollar back for those receipts. But when you submit that package of receipts to your company, you're getting a dollar for every dollar back. So do you understand how that works? And he goes, he goes really quiet for a while. And he's okay. Yeah. I'll get those out to you tomorrow. <laughs> but he, he, in his mind thought that the, the, his own company, cause it was their company was cheating him out of tax deductions. When in fact, what he was cheating himself out of, but not turning in their seats was a full 100%, you know, reimbursement for his expenses instead of just getting 25 cents per dollar back. So if he's a guitar player and he's buying his strings for whatever they are, he's getting yeah. such and such back from the government. Uh, yeah. But, but, but it's really money out of his pocket when he gets yeah, money out of his pocket and he's only essentially getting a deduction. I mean, a tax, uh, you know, a tax deduction of about 25 okay. cents on the dollar. Right. And and how many I don't I don't know how many guitar strings a guitar player goes through in a year, but well, it can't be it can't be that many. Oh yeah, I mean, guy like him, he's changing. You know, oh, okay, he's changing the strings on five or six guitars every night. Really? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, those guys aren't those guys aren't playing used strings when they go on stage. Okay, not at that level. Okay. <laughs> every night. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I can see how that would add up, but yeah, you're right. I think, and we got a little bit off track here, but uh, it, my 
frame of reference here is when I'm listening to podcasts or reading books on mu- on business, and they're they're not music business in nature. But a, a, a theme that I hear over and over is when you focus primarily on the money, it the money isn't going to be there. But if you, if, and, and I may not be saying it exactly right, but if no, you, I know exactly what you mean. Then. Yeah, but if yeah. you focus on something that's bigger than the money, then the money is just going to come. I, I think what I'm saying is if you just are focused on adding value to the marketplace, yeah. then the money is going to come. You you have to focus first of all on what you're passionate about. You know what 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 gets you up in the morning. What makes your heart pound. That's what you have to focus on. That doesn't guarantee you that that thing is going to bring money because it doesn't necessarily even mean that you're going to do what you're doing as well as the guy next door down the road or around town is making a lot of money doing something very similar to what you're doing. But he may have, he may have, particularly when we're talking about music, he may have a connection with the audience you're not making with your, with your music. But then again, he may have a manager who's making that connection for him. And he's figured out how to do it that way. He's figured out how to find somebody else to bring into his entourage or into his sphere who has that gift on the other side to help him reach his goals. So there's, you know, every, and every single person is different. I mean, every single artist is different in that regard. And uh, I think, I think it's important to sit down and, and talk, talk with a real, a real successful manager sometimes and just get advice. And there's, there's a coalition actually out there. And I, I apologize that I can't remember the name of them right now. I'd have to look it up, but there, it's a, it's an artist group uh, or an artist management group that does uh, in fact offer like, like um, you know, it's a, a fee for service counseling kind of uh, thing where they'll, you sit down, you pay for an hour, and you get advice from them. And if you're, if you're a young kid, 17 years old, you bring your parents with you, that sort of thing. And, and, uh, and they'll, they'll show you how to set up your business properly and show you what you, what you need to do, analyze, take a listen to your music, say, yeah, this sounds great, but you know, I would do this differently maybe. And, um, and show them the steps because the music business is in fact, not rocket surgery. Okay. It's not, but it is also, it's not easy to, catch lightning in every bottle. You know, in fact, the way, the way I, the way I describe it is, is that the, the, the first goal of any artist is to chase the storm. You've got to, you've got to get all of your tools, right. You got to get all of your, your, all of your, the pieces of your, of your business, because your music thing is your business. If that's what you're wanting to do for a living, you got to get it all right in the right position. And then after you have everything right, and it's still not, doing what the guy down the road is doing and he's having the success and you're not, well, he already maybe got the lightning strike because he was chasing the storm. So then you got to get out and chase the storm and that's a whole nother conversation, but you've got to, you've got to be there when the lightning strikes. And, uh, um, and as I said, every single artist is different. The, the things that you're talking about with everything that goes into running a business or starting a business and you just, you're like rattling off all of these, things one after another, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this. And if you're not, if you don't have much of a business acumen, you might be listening, thinking, oh my goodness, I I could never do that. It it seems overwhelming. But at the same time, and I want to get your thoughts on this, it seems like once you do all of these things, it seems like there's a lot of time investment Mm -hmm. on the upfront, but eventually you're going to get settled into a groove. 
You're going to get into a rhythm where that, that thing, just, just like learning to play trumpet, you know? Yeah. It, it was intimidating at first, but then you get into a groove. You get into a rhythm, and it, it's not like it's easy, but it's manageable. And it's, it may be the same way with music, where, where at one point it seems like it, it's insurmountable. But you just take that little bite out of the elephant each day, and then soon enough you're in a rhythm, and you're like, okay, I can handle yeah. this. Has, yeah. is, has that been the case for you? Yeah, well, that's, I mean, it happened to me organically because I didn't ever really pursue any of those those various opportunities outside of being a trumpet player. These are things that just happened to me. And so I would take it on and then, you know, I learned it and got good at it, like you're talking about, a little bite at a time. And then, and then those things grew into something else. And then I would either get bored with what I was doing and want to try something else or whatever. And then eventually it all went full circle back to trumpet again. So if, if you're listening and you're thinking, uh, you know, business is intimidating. Well, it is. If you don't know anything about it, anything is intimidating. If you don't know anything about it, take the advice from someone who has been there and done that and has the scars to prove it. And uh, look at Steve. He's, he's still alive. Clean shaven. He looks really good. I got through Still COVID healthy. too, man. I got through COVID <laughs> got through without COVID. any, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I made it, I made it through the disease twice and I made it through the lockdown. So you got, uh, you got COVID twice. I got COVID twice. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I it was uh, one of those things where you got it once and you don't get it anymore. Oh no, 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 no. Mm-mm. A lot of people get it multiple times because the different variants, you know, they, they come at you differently. And, and so, um, I, um, I, I was, uh, pretty healthy when, when COVID showed up. Um, I was, uh, at the time, uh, you may, may or may not remember this, but I was doing a David Bowie tribute act at the time, another non-trumpet thing that I was doing. And so in, in order to be, um, you know, to be a David Bowie tribute act, you can't be heavy. So I had to lose 60 pounds just to do that act. So I was really trim. I was healthy when COVID came to town. And of course, you know, the number one comorbidity and number one cause of death with COVID is obesity. So, um, I didn't have that problem when it, so I was really healthy when I got, uh, when the, the virus got me the first time and I was in good weight and good health position and working out. And so it was a fairly smooth ride through the, the first time. And then the second time was just like sniffles, uh, wasn't, wasn't bad at all, but the, uh, but, uh, made it through the disease and then also made it, as I said, made it through the lockdowns because we, you know, we went 15 months with not being allowed to work never seen anything like that hopefully we'll never see it again yeah i can't imagine the uproar if the governments were to try to do that again i can't even imagine yeah it's going to be, be blood on be the ugly. streets it's going to be ugly if they try to do oh anything goodness. at that level again mm-hmm. all right well this seems like the perfect segue and i alluded to this earlier in the show and we're going to go we're going to go completely off topic of trumpet and music music business we've had our fun with it but like I said, you know, we have Steve Baker's on the show, and he he knows his stuff when it comes to um, politics. We've we've already talked about how he has been a, a political commentator. He's, he calls himself the pragmatic libertarian. Change the, I, I even rebranded that last oh, year. Oh, okay. Yeah. What, is, what is it? Pragmatic called constitutionalist. That's I, right. I, That's I right. dropped I dropped the libertarian uh, thing not because I'm I am a libertarian, um, but um, it was I, I was being too often associated directly with the libertarian party. And I'm okay. not, a, I'm not a member of the party. Sure. I'm, got it. Got I'm it. an independent small L libertarian politically. Okay. 
So yeah. I'm not a member of any party. And as a result of that, I was being associated too frequently with it. So I, I rebranded myself um, during the lockdowns, actually. All right. Well, the people that, you know, wrote and ratified the Constitution, they were small L libertarians, too. So. That's exactly right. Makes sense. But anyway, all that to say is that Steve knows some things about what happened on January 6th. Yeah. And I, I, I want to hear what he has to say. And I'm just going to uh, caveat here is this is his commentary. This is not my commentary. I don't know. I really don't know that much about this whole issue. I've been so preoccupied with uh, traveling between Virginia and Vietnam and taking care of you know, my wife and my child. Of course, I'm aware of what happened, but I don't know that much about it. There's been a lot of, it was just, I think it was just last week where they had you know, finished up the congressional inquiries and all kinds of things have been said. So mm. we, we, we all know that something major happened, uh, <laughs> but, but Steve just has, his, he has his take and he's very well read, he's very well versed. And I just want to give Steve the floor and tell us what you know. And if you, yeah. if you don't like it, then that's fine. But man's entitled to his opinion. He's entitled to share what he believes to be true. So go for it, man. The beginning of that story is that I was there that day and I wasn't there as a, I wasn't there as a Trump supporter. I'm, I'm not a Trump supporter. I, I, uh, I campaigned, um, aggressively against him in 2016 I was brutal, in fact, in my editorials and my blogs about uh, his candidacy. Now, I was not a Hillary fan either, so I was both hashtag never Trump and, and hashtag never, never Hillary during that uh, election cycle. But um, when it came time for this thing that was announced to happen in January 6th, on January 6th of last year, and it was obviously widely publicized that there was supposed to be some big event, something wild, something, uh, uh, you know, the Kraken was going to be unleashed about the election controversy and that sort of thing. Well, just as a political observer, there was there was only one place to be on January 6, 2021. And that was in D.C. that day. And so myself and another writer and actually a very successful political writer who lives here in Raleigh, we uh, carpooled up there together, got a hotel room together and we. Um, uh, attended the the rally, and the the very very short version of that is the la the rally was what they call a nothing burger. It was uh, it was a it was just super cold and windy that day, and it was really really miserable being outside that day. But um, Trump's speech had no content. It had no nothing revelatory in it whatsoever. There was no cracking unleashed. There was no uh, big uh, announcement that they that everybody you know there was literally hundreds of thousands of people there, hundreds of thousands that had come in from as far away as Alaska and California and and you know all points east and west, and and it there was nothing coming from that speech whatsoever. And it was obvious that nothing was going to come. So about halfway through the speech, um, my friend and I started working our way to the Capitol because the Capitol March was on the scheduled events. And a lot of, of Americans don't even know this because they're, they're being told by the house select committee that we just, you just mentioned a while ago, and they're being told by uh, the media that, that Trump sent them to the Capitol that day, you know, to fight like hell and create a, you know, riotous event and cause an insurrection. Now you you got to 
I got to step back here and say, remember, you're talking about a guy talking to a guy who's not a Trump supporter, but I have to defend the reality and the facts on the ground that day. The reality on the ground was, is that there were flyers published in advance and on the organizer's website that there was going to be two different marches. One was going to be a march to the Capitol, and then another one was going to be a march around the Capitol, you know, like a Jericho march, what they call it, literally blowing horns, shofars, trumpets. And, and uh, that was scheduled. I did not bring my horn with me because that's not why I was there. I was there to cover the event. I had my camera. I had my microphone. I had my, you know, man on the street gear. And I was going to interview people on the street and ask them what they talked, what they thought about the event, come back, edit it down for a podcast. That's, that's all I intended to do that day. That was it. Well, we, because we left early and because both of us are very healthy and it was very cold, we were walking really quick that mile, mile and a half from the, the ellipse down to the, um, the Capitol building. And I got to the Capitol, um, reflection pool on the West side about, oh, just a few minutes before Trump even finished his speech. And then all of a sudden we could see smoke and we could hear sirens going off and then we could see additional police running all over the west terrace of the capitol and then we could hear flashbangs and so i looked over at my friend and i said chuck that's where we're going and so we broke out and ran and ran up uh, in a run and we ran up there to where the 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 action unfolded and so for the next hour i caught on video all of that uh, that battle line you know between the violent perpetrators and then the capitol police and the dc metro police who were there supporting them and then about almost exactly an hour later the police line broke there was an obvious stand down order because again this is this is a this is an unknown thing to the general public is that is that the rioters did not break the police line and remember this police line was fully armed the rioters had sticks, flagpoles, bear spray, you know, they were using items as clubs and spears, but they did not bring weapons of war with them. They did not have AR-15s. They did not have um, firearms, but this was a fully armed police support, uh, police force being supported by a second police force that was arriving in number during that entire time, who were also then being supported by FBI, ATF, and U.S. Marshal Tactical Units. Again, something very, very poorly reported by the mainstream media, but they were there. The reason why I know they were there, I caught them on my camera. I actually have them in my camera. Frame. So the, the point being is that that police line was never broken. At some point, right around uh, 210, 212 on that uh, Wednesday afternoon, uh, there was a, an apparent stand down order, which has never been um, verified, but it was obvious from what we could see with our own eyes. And then at that point, um, some of the earliest and more violent people, um, I call them agents provocateur that were inciting everything that was going on. They moved up, they broke the, the window open on that West side terrace, uh, Northwest side of the Capitol. And, uh, they went through the windows, opened the doors from the inside. And then from that point forward, it was a free flow of humanity into the Capitol for the next, uh, you know, hour or so. And that's, um, that's a really uh, simplistic overview. But if I, if I can jump forward and then you can jump in and ask me any questions where you want to take this. But I did, in fact, go into the Capitol and I was in there for about 45 minutes. And I, um, I filmed uh, quite a bit of the action that was going on uh, both inside. And I did, did not, um, I was not there when Ashley Babbitt was shot. I was inside the building, but I was across a hall, a different hallway from where she was very close, but not there. 
but that was the first time all day after that shot was fired that then all of the officers drew their weapons and then all the guns came out and because they were getting they were getting squawks over their radio you know shots fired shots fired this sort of thing and so they were all of a sudden now in panic they were in fear their eyes were wide they were already you know some of them had already been you know had the shit kicked out of them for quite some time outside but now shots have been fired and they have no idea where these shots had come from they didn't know that it was one of their own who had actually pulled the trigger they thought it was they literally thought it was a um protesters that that were firing multiple shots inside the Capitol building. And that's, that was the information they were getting in the confusion of the moment uh, over their radios. And I, I got, I captured that on my, you know, the audio from my video. And so um, it was only just a few minutes after that, that I uh, started the process of extricating myself from the, the building. And I went down to the lower level and I actually came up on Ashley Babbitt where they were trying to save her life. They had, she was shot on the main level. And the, um, if you remember, there was a tactical team. If you've seen the video that carried her downstairs and I actually came right up on that event. I was the only civilian there. Uh, it was an FBI tactical unit that was actually trying to resuscitate her. And, uh, I got to the door of the South exit of the lower level of the building, right as the EMT unit was coming in with the gurney, that sort of thing. So I had to step back from that. And then I went outside and I posted up just outside that door and captured video that has been sold and licensed by news agencies and documentary film crews and such producers rather all over the world, including some of my video. I got about, like probably about six different videos in the HBO documentary on January 6th from that. So I, you know, my, I have a, I have an agent for my talking about the music business earlier. Sometimes it's good to have an agent and um, I have an agent that, that, um, uh, represented me for all these videos and that sort of thing. And then uh, jumping forward in time much further, nine and a half months later, I got a call from the FBI one day and they wanted to interview me, rang me up on late September morning. And I said, uh, he introduced me, introduced himself and said, hi, this is officer Dunn with the FBI. And I said, Hey, what took you so long? <laughs> because I, because I hadn't been hiding it. I had done multiple stories and blogs and broadcasts, podcasts, and I had been interviewed on, you know, um, national news organ TV shows and that sort of thing. So it wasn't like I was hiding the fact that I was there or that I was, um, um, reporting about it, but, uh, so they, they did an interview and I, uh, fortunately, I'm uh, not one of those that was caught up in the dragnet. I have not been charged or arrested. And so, uh, I continue to work on it. Um, I just, just as a, another brief aside, it really changed me. Um, what I saw, I, I'm not a, I'm not one of those guys who chases riots. You know, there, there are professional, um, there are professional journalists that that's what they do is they chase riots or they're war correspondents, that sort of thing. And I can tell you after having been through it, I don't ever want to do that. That's I'm not attracted to that in any way, but having said that, the one thing that it did do is it turned me more into an investigative journalist than it than I ever had been before than just a political commentator because I saw things with my own eyes and I saw things through my camera frame after hours and hours of frame by frame analysis of what I captured that day that created a lot of questions for me that are um, outside of the mainstream. Let's just say the one thing I don't want to do is scare off anybody. I don't care uh, who, whether your listener is a Democrat or Republic or Republican, a moderate, a, an independent or libertarian like myself. Um, I, I've always had, and I've always strived to, to do one thing and one thing in particular, when it comes to my political analysis, it's to, um, divest myself from 
either tribe or any tribe for that matter. And of course, in the United States, it's it's predominantly two tribes with a lot of you know sprinkles of different colors you know thrown in. But it's it's two two tribes. You know, the the, the left side uh, predominantly the Democrats, the right side predominantly Republicans. I I'm a man without a party in that regard. I'm not even a member of the Libertarian Party of the philosophy which I claim to you know or that I label myself with. But um, the the one thing that I strive to do is is to look at each situation and analyze that from as objective a point of view as I possibly can. Now that's absolutely impossible because we all have our inherent biases, you know, biases, and we all have our presuppositions about the way the world works and should work, that sort of thing. So it's impossible to completely devoid or divest ourselves from those, you know, those pressures, the bias pressures that we have on each of ourselves. But when it comes to January 6th, I'm a bit of a unicorn because I went there as a non-Trump supporter, but I ended up in the middle of what was going on, not as a protester, not as a person, you know, um, uh, committing violence against law enforcement. I was, a, I, I had a camera and a microphone and that was, that was my purpose for being there, not knowing that that was going to happen, you know, because what ended up taking place that day was, was a total sh- you know, shock and surprise for all of us that were there uh, for that the same sort of reason, like myself, independent journalists. And so, um, but I followed the story where the story went. And then when I came home and I spent days, I spent five days just doing frame by frame analysis of my video before I even started writing my first story. And my first story was a 9,500 word story about what I saw that day. 9,500 words, for those that don't know, is, that's a long, long. It is. Uh, oh, yes. That's a that's a small pamphlet. Yeah, I mean, m- most of the articles that you read in a newspaper or even online are eight hundred to twelve. You know, they, most people think that a twelve hundred word article is TLDR, too long, didn't read, and and uh, um, and so my first one was a ninety five hundred word story. My second one, the follow up, was a thirty five hundred word story, and then I've written just abs- probably a hundred or more since then on, on this topic as I dove into it. And now I'm, I'm to the point now where I'm investigating specific events and specific people that were involved or, or that have been in, uh, in identified. There's, there's an entire roster of what we, what we call and what we refer to as unindicted co-conspirators in the day. We don't know what side they're from. We don't know who they are. We don't know if they're uh, Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, Antifa, BLM, um, a Fed, federal agents. We don't know, but we, we know that there are people that have been identified in the crowd doing really bad things that for whatever reason have not been arrested. And I've thrown myself very deep into the, to the research and investigation of who some of these characters are. And, um, and then in addition, in addition to that, uh, I've obviously spent, I've, I've watched all of the eight, you know, house select committee hearings with great interest. I've watched every one of them, every minute of every one of them. And I have some very strong thoughts about that. And I don't like it. I don't like the committee and not for the reasons that uh, a Democrat might think that I don't like them. And I don't like them for the reasons that a Republican might think that I don't like them. I don't like them because it's a show trial and to be, to be, and yes, it's not a trial. Let's just be perfectly clear. Yes, I understand it is not a trial. It's not a grand jury, but it is a House of Representatives investigative hearing. And yet there's only one side producing evidence and there is no quote unquote cross-examination of the witnesses. Like for instance, right now there's a hearing taking place 
in D.C. in the House of Representatives, and it's over new proposed gun ban legislation. Okay, so in that because I'm following that as well. And in that particular hearing, both sides have their five minutes and they're going after each other, you know? So the, the, the chairman of the committee is obviously a Democrat because they hold the majority right now. So he's, uh, you know, he's overseeing the committee and then he gives, you know, five minutes to the, one of the guys on his side. Then he gives five minutes to one of the guys from the other side of the aisle. And then they go after each other and then they contradict each other. And then they argue and they debate. And that's the way a hearing is supposed to be. But this particular hearing that we're seeing related to January 6th is a one-sided agenda focused thing. And it's not really looking for the truth of this, what this hearing is looking to do. And here I go again, as a non-Trump supporter, I'm just saying that the only reason that that hearing exists is because Nancy Pelosi herself said, and I quote, she said, we are going to establish and preserve the narrative of January 6th. And the narrative that they are establishing is leaving out the ability for the other side to interject, ask questions, contradict, bring in their own evidence, bring in their own witnesses. That's not happening in this, this hearing. And so as an American, I don't like this thing at all because we're not getting both sides of the story and we can't, I don't care what your bias is. You cannot expect to get the truth. If you don't allow both sides to bring their evidence to the table and that's right. not happening in this hearing so. so so your main complaint is that what we know as due process is being discarded yeah well this is the, this is the first time in american history that a um house of representative hearing is taking place without the opposition party being able to sit their own committee members never happened before this is the first time it's unprecedented and and there are reasons that if you talk to people on the left, talk to Democrats of why they believe that that's justified in this case, whether whether they have their rationale for it or not, this is the first time this has ever happened in American history that the opposition party did not get to choose their members. And and so as we watch these hearings, the other thing is, is that the these are these are frankly. And this is not an exaggeration. It's on the record. I can, I can give you the names, but this is a Hollywood produced production. Uh, the, the actual producer of the entire event is the former president of ABC news. And he is um, editing all the videos. He is uh, managing the script between, because as you notice, it's very, it's very clean. It's, the presentation is, is specifically designed and produced for primetime audiences. Unlike the typical uh, hearings, that uh, where, where we see the debates and the arguments and that sort of thing. And this is a produced event where as soon as one of the representatives on the, on the, the committee says something, then it's cut to a slickly, you know, uh, produced video. Then they come back, they make a another statement and cut away to another video, then another video. And then they introduce two witnesses, typically per hearing, two witnesses per hearing. And they ask some questions. Of course, all these questions are pre-scripted. The responses are known exactly what they're going to get in advance because it's a tightly edited, scripted event. And it, it is literally, and, and you can take this as a, as a negative or not, it is, in fact, a show trial. It's a produced show. 
for the American marketplace. And so people that would normally be watching, you know, uh, um, a sitcom or CSI or, you know, some sort of uh, law and order crime show or whatever uh, on, on a Thursday night at eight o'clock, they're getting this instead. And it's produced by somebody who produces those kind of shows. And that's exactly what they got. Wow. That is interesting. And, and, and it's knowing what I know about American politics, what you're talking about is not shocking to hear, sadly. But now I, I, we're, we're running a, a little short on time here. So unfortunate, un, unfortunately, we have, to, we have to cut this particular interview short. This is a show that is music based, so it's it's not politics, and I have no agenda at all. I like like I said earlier, I don't know. Uh, all I know is that something major went down, and I really don't know that much about it. But I just we we if you have an opportunity to have a, a subject matter expert talk about something of importance, you're a fool to not allow him to to say something. But you know this this show doesn't exist for politics, but I if people are still listening, I'm assuming that they're interested in what you're saying. So uh, is there a website that people can go to, to see these videos that you've taken your blogs, et cetera? Yeah. Um, we're, we are in the process right now of rebuilding my actual website. Um, and there's reasons for that while we're in the middle of reconstructing that. So um, they can go to the pragmaticconstitutionalist.com, but we quit populating that about a year ago. So everything right now is coming from our locals community. I don't know if you're familiar with what locals is, but okay. So it's, it's like a content creator site, like a Patreon kind of place. And uh, it's a, uh, it's free to subscribe there. So it doesn't cost anything as a read only uh, member. Uh, or subscriber, but uh, it's also a place where people can opt to support, you know, what we're doing. So that is why it is quote unquote, my side hustle, but the um, it's called the pragmatic constitutionalist.locals.com the pragmatic constitutionalist.locals.com, or they can download the app from their app store for whatever device they have. And then they can look for my handle there. And it's also the, the it's the locals app and it's at TPC for USA at TPC, the number four USA. And, um, and so that's the best place to go. Obviously we're on Facebook. I have two Facebook pages. We're, uh, on me, we gab parlor. Um, we do everything on rumble. We don't do anything on YouTube anymore because YouTube is a, um, uh, deplatformer for alternative voices. And so we don't do anything on YouTube anymore. And then, um, so all of our videos and all of our podcasts go directly to rumble for the video versions. And then of course, all of our audios are available on wherever podcasts are available. So all the major platforms. So, um, I have, you know, reams and reams and hours and hours of, of content out there about that particular topic in itself, as well as so many others. Wonderful. Well, this is, uh, we're going on an hour and a half that we've been talking. I don't know how exactly how long the actual podcast will be, but uh, <laughs> whew. well, we're not quite in Joe Rogan territory yet. But no, uh, not quite. No, <laughs> not quite. But if you, you know what, if if your if your listeners want to uh, get into this a little bit more, and they absolutely, want to, and they like, want us, to, and you hear from them, and they say, you know, bring me back. Well, then we'll do. Yeah. We'll do like a, you know, we'll do a sideline on this and and yeah. take their questions or whatever. And, and I think love it or leave or love it or hate it. You should, if, if you're, I mean, if you're still here, you're obviously interested in what Steve is saying. So why not check it out? 
thepragmaticconstitutionalist.locals.com, is it? Yeah, that's the best place to go. Or if you're on Facebook, it's uh, facebook.com uh, forward slash the pragmatic constitutionalist. Just type, type that in. You'll see it. All right. All right. Well, wonderful. My name is James Newcomb, and you've been listening to the Trumpet Dynamics podcast. And I, my guest is Steve Baker, the owner of the Bull City Syndicate <laughs> and the world-renowned political commentator and firsthand witness to the January 6th events at the U.S. Capitol. It's been a pleasure, my friend. I can't wait to do it again. Thanks, James. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me today. Well, that is a wrap for this episode of Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. Are you a true listener? Visit TrumpetDynamics.com to learn how you can be notified each time a new episode is published. And if you really like what you hear on this podcast, the best way to support me and the show is to subscribe to my daily email newsletter, where I share what I learn and observe in life in an infotaining way. Many folks have told me they enjoy the emails, and I think you will too. Again, the best way to subscribe to the email newsletter is to visit TrumpetDynamics.com. Thank you for listening to this episode and we'll be in your earballs soon. You're still here. You must like this show or something. Well, I've got a special offer for you for hanging in there to the very end and proving yourself to be a true listener. I have a brand new, and it is exclusive for devoted fans of the Trumpet Dynamics podcast. It is called The Secret Chamber of Don Clarino. It's brand new. I don't even know what's going to come of it. I'm honestly not even really involved in it, but I'm contractually obligated to tell you about it as an employee of the Trumpet Dynamics podcast. So if you want to learn more about it, here's the URL, trumpetdynamics.live forward slash DC, trumpetdynamics.live forward slash DC. There's a short registration process and you'll be in there. Okay. I don't know if I'm even allowed to be in there, honestly. Check it out. See if you like it. Later.